0: There's a thrill that happens to a human soul when the one whom we believe to be the image of Jesus comes into view. It is thrilling. Uh, At first, when you're looking at the artist as he's, you know, jumping around and as he's putting these different paint strokes on the canvas, you wonder, you know, if you've never seen it before, you wonder, what in the world is this guy doing, you know? And... uh, then, then, then just suddenly, you know, everything comes into view. I, I would imagine that in the same way the creator, the, the God of the Bible, uh, with the strokes of scripture, the strokes of his artistry, over a period of hundreds of years, uh, the prophets and the angels must have wondered, what's God up to? What, what, what's he doing? And then, and then within just two, two minutes, coming into view, the one whom we perceive to be, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes perfectly uh, into view. The one that we recognize uh, by by Scripture, not by sight, because we love Him, having not seen Him, and uh, that's that. That's thrilling. I tell you what: each prophetic stroke over the long years of the different prophets that brought uh, Jesus to, to to view, that brought the Messiah into into view, like. Like God painting upon the canvas of human history would reveal the nature, the character and the very image of his son who would come forth as the savior of the world. No prophet, no prophet has a greater contribution to the canvas of the unveiling of the Messiah as does the prophet Isaiah. And so I've titled this message, the, The Gospel of Isaiah, but admittedly, when, whenever we think of the, the word gospel, good news, we, we think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The only four gospels that we uh, ascribe as being inspired by God. But I want you to know this morning that there is just cause for me and others to call, to call what, what Isaiah has written as the gospel, uh, the good news. Uh, that we can call it that, and, and we're going to look at that in a few minutes. Uh, Isaiah, more than any other prophet, uh, has 66 books, 66 chapters, rather, of, of the Bible, and, and they really do parallel uh, the 66 books of the Bible. In fact, what you might want to do later today is there's 39 books in the Old, 27 in the new right so the 40th book would be like the parallel of the beginning of the new covenant the new testament right and and if you'll look at isaiah chapter 40 later on today you'll see that there is talk about there is mention about john the baptist uh the one who has come to make straight the path for the lord uh and and it's just so marvelous as as uh Isaiah opens unto us on the canvas of human history, uh, the coming of of the Messiah. Uh, Isaiah spoke about the virgin that shall conceive and bear a child and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And again, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. A couple of weeks ago, I shared at the end of the service with the illustration of that crushed reed, that, that when he comes, he will not break a bruised reed. He'll not quench a, 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 a smoking uh, wick. He'll not quench a smoking flax. And uh, while many of those prophecies from the book of Isaiah are, are, are worthy of study and examination, this morning what we're going to do, and over the next couple of weeks what, what we're going to do is we're going to look at one small portion of Isaiah's prophecy. Um. I was going to call this the greatest chapter in the Bible, but my problem is that it begins at the end of chapter 52 and it's completed at the end of chapter 53. So I, I couldn't call it the greatest chapter in the Bible, uh, but I call it the greatest uh, in this sense, that, that it is the gospel according to Isaiah written in, in the 8th century before Christ. And it seems to us like, as we go through this, it seems to us that Isaiah was there standing next to John as an eyewitness of the events that are written in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that we will see. Written some 730 years before the actual birth of Christ. My, uh, <clears throat> my son, Will, uh, just had a 12th anniversary. He was married to his wife Carrie on July 1st, uh, 2000. Uh, They got married in Virginia. And uh, on the next month, uh, my daughter Kelly and Doug got married at the end of August. I had two weddings, a parent, right? My wife and I had two children get married, one in July and one in August. That's why I've got a lot of gray hair, folks. You know, I mean, it was a busy, it was a busy summer. It was a blur, you know, and it it was, it was great. But, but coming back, right, from Virginia on a Sunday morning, right, having to be here at the 11 o'clock service, right, uh, we were flying from Baltimore to uh, MacArthur Airport. And uh, it was my wife and I, my mother-in-law, Kay, at the time who was alive, and uh, my son Anthony, uh, his wife, Shannon, who's downstairs teaching right now, uh, Noah. Raise your hand up, Noah. Come on. He was two and a half years old at the time. And Emma, on the other side of Anthony, was only like two and a half months old, right? So so who would have figured, who would have thunk it, right, that at 6.30 in the morning, 6.30 flight, you know, that there would be so many people at the airport. So we pull up to the airport, and it's like wall-to-wall people. So Anthony and I, we get online to check our bags in, and we send the, we send the ladies and the children to, to, to go ahead to the to the terminal, right? But by the way, whoever thought about calling the place where planes take off and land's terminal? I mean, think about it. Would you, would you want, you know, to take off from a terminal, you know? So so, so anyway, we, we send them out. And the first mishap that, that takes place is my mother-in-law, who was in her mid-70s at the time. She, she wanders off and gets lost, right? And, 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 and little know, a two and a half years, old Noah, curious, right? Sticks his finger in the conveyor belt, right? Gets his fingers squashed and crushed in there and starts screaming bloody murder, right? So Shannon, to comfort him, picks him up in, in, in our arms. And, and so my wife has to carry Emma in this, you know, heavy uh, car seat, right? And uh, they've got to walk from one end of the airport to the gate, which is all the way on the other side of the airport, right? And so, by the time they they, they find Grandma and they find and, and they get to the gate, right? The lady at the at the check-in says, "We're about ready to close the doors. You know, you just made it in time." And she's said, oh, "No, no, wait, wait, wait! My husband and my son they haven't they haven't arrived yet. They're, they're coming now. My husband's a pastor and he's got to you know do a service at eleven o'clock on Long Island. Please, please, wait, wait." She said, well, you better hurry. So Kathy comes down in the hall a little bit, and she sees us away far off, right? And she starts waving like crazy, and she's yelling, run, run, right? My my, my quiet, austere wife, right, is yelling, run, Run!" so 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 we run. Now, the thing that I didn't tell you is that Doug and Kelly, who were at the wedding, are coming back by car. And I don't want to bring my tux on the plane, so I give my tux to Doug to drive home, and I'll get it when, when, when we all meet up. Now, my wallet with my license and my photo ID was in my tux. Now, now, what do you think the possibilities are they're going to let me on that plane without a photo ID? Now, I said, I said in the beginning this was the year 2000. Had it, had it been after 9/11. It would have. I would have never got on that plane. But my wife pleaded and she begged and she cried and I got on the plane. Now, here's what I want you to know: is that when Jesus the Messiah showed up, he had identification. He had a photo ID. He had a portrait that was that was produced over centuries of time that would describe him to the T, some 340 detailed prophecies unveiling the character, the ministry, and the nature of the Son of God. Now, I pointed out in the past that Isaiah 52, where, where this really should start, I don't know why the translators divided the chapters the way they did. You know, the, the, the chapter divisions aren't inspired, you know, but 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 they were put in there to help us and so I don't want to be critical, but but I'm not the only one that feels that the end of Isaiah fifty-two should have should have been a part of Isaiah fifty-three as one continual prophecy. So what I want you to do is I want you to dig of this. We're gonna look at a few verses in chapter fifty-three this just morning just to get a feel of of one of the most famous portions of Isaiah's prophecy. But I want to focus in on the end. Of uh, chapter 52 this morning. And, and I'd like you to think of it as, uh, as the overture. You, you know what a musical overture is? A musical overture is, is a sampling of what is to follow. It is a, it is a musical piece that is representative in a, in a nutshell of, of all that is to follow. So the verses that we're going to look at at the end of 52 are. Are that is the overture of what is to follow in one of the greatest prophetic pieces of, of literature that God has given to us through the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah starts with the agony and the ignominy, the shame of the cross, because that's the reason why Jesus came. He came to die. He came to give his life as a ransom for many, And so we come because the very beginning is is to know that he is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. That according to the predestined purpose and counsel and foreknowledge of God, Jesus was to be executed as a substitution for the sin of the world. My statement is simply this. It is the predestined triumph and victory of Jesus Christ his death, burial, and resurrection, his triumph. So let's begin reading, and I'll I'll break down a few of these thoughts as the Holy Spirit helps us this morning. Isaiah 52, verse 13, it says, See, behold, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up, and he will be highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see and what they had not heard they will understand. 53. Who had believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He didn't have the look. He he wasn't one of the beautiful people. That's what Isaiah was saying. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, Familiar with suffering, like one from whom we hid our faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Within two verses, it says that he's despised several times now. Surely he took our infirmities and he carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him smitten by God, stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. Those are the words that describe what it means to become cursed by God but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds, literally by his bleeding stripes, we are healed. I just counted such an honor just to be able to read that portion of scripture to you. Isaiah, more than any other prophet is quoted in the New Testament. In fact, he's quoted more, twice as much as everyone else combined. We often hear, uh, read, uh, so that it might fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Even Jesus quoted from the prophet Isaiah saying, well, has Isaiah said, and then gave the quotation before us is one of the most sublime and one of the most profound prophecies found anywhere in the Old Testament, 700 plus years before the actual events. And like I said, it's like, it's like a journalist from Eyewitness News who's standing there at the cross, 700 plus years before the events took place, and he's reporting on, on what took place there at a place called Calvary or Golgotha. Here is the gospel in brushstrokes they can only depict one person. We can only identify the one person, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 13, Isaiah says, Behold, or see, my servant, he will act wisely. First, the first thing that, that Isaiah brings before our eyes is the character of the Lord Jesus. He's, he's called the servant of God. This is, this is both honoring and it is humbling. For the one who is called the servant of God is none other than the star maker. None other than the maker of heaven and earth. By whom he came into the world, but the world did not know him. He came into his own and, the, and his own received him not. Even the members of his own family did not believe upon him. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God, even to those that believe on his name. He's come in condescending service, in infinite love for the purpose of becoming the the Lord of the house the servant of God, just as Moses was the servant in God's house as he conducted the affairs for the people of God. So Jesus has come as the servant of the Lord to conduct the affairs for the house of God, but is worthy of greater honor than that of Moses, for he's the maker and builder of all things. It says that he will act wisely. Some translations say he will, he will act prudently. He will be successful and prosper. He will act wisely. Of course he will act wisely. He is, he is wisdom personified. Read Proverbs chapter 8 sometime and see that, that that which is talked about as wisdom that brought about the creation can only be personified as the person of the Lord Jesus. Of course he would be wisdom. In him are hid all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in him. When he was a child, he confounded the doctors of divinity in the temple by his questions. Before his adversaries, they couldn't withstand his wisdom. They said, they, they, they said stuff like, uh, should we pay tribute or not? Thinking that they got him caught between a rock and a hard place. Because if he said yes, on the one hand, they would accuse him of not being a patriot. And on the other hand, if he said no, then they would accuse him of sedition against the Roman empire. So he said, he said, to be a coin. And they they brought him a coin and he says, whose image is on this? And they said, Caesar's. <laughs> and he said, then give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. And they could not withstand his wisdom. He said to a group of men that were ready to bash in a woman's body in, he said, let the first one that's without sin cast a stone. And from the young, oldest to the youngest, they began dropping their stones and fled because they could not... Resist his wisdom. In John chapter 7, the Sanhedrin sent the temple guards to arrest Jesus, bring him back, stand trial. They come back empty-handed, and they are angry. And the Sanhedrin say, why didn't you men bring him here? And they said, because no man's ever spoken like this before. The wisdom of God in the man Christ Jesus, in the God-man Jesus. He was wise then but he is even wise today, yesterday, today, and forever. I love what Charles Spurgeon wrote about the wisdom of Jesus. Listen to this quote. I think we have it up on the screen. Our fears, he says, lead us to judge that the affairs of Christ's kingdom are going amiss. They're going wrong. But we may rest assured that all is well, for the Lord has put all things under the feet of Jesus made him to be the head over all things to the church. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in the hand of Jesus still. Listen to this. He says, we err, we make mistakes, but he does not. No, the very points wherein we err are overruled by him for the display of his unerring wisdom and consummate skill. The storms and the tempests which surround the church serve only to illustrate the wisdom and the power of our great captain, our pilot. He has ultimate design, which are not apparent upon the surface, and these he never fails to accomplish. Reminds me of a of a song that was very popular. It, it made the, the the pop ten charts back in the day when I was a kid. Some of you might remember. It went like this. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the little bitty babies in his hands. He's got you and me, brother. He's got you and me, sister, in his hands. What's that, What's that simply saying is this, that everything is in his hand and everything is under his control. He will be raised and lifted up, highly exalted, said Isaiah. And here is, the, here is the paradox. Here, here is this, this contradiction of terms. On the one hand, Isaiah says he's going to be exalted and extolled, and he's going to be praised. On the other hand, he mentions, I mentioned already several times that he's despised and rejected of men. There was no beauty that we should desire him. And there's this contradiction of terms. And you know, it, it's, it's funny still, but, but Jesus is still Controversial. Jesus is still, to this day, among many, he is despised and rejected. He's then was made the song of drunkards. Today he's made the the jokes of comedians. But there's a number of us by the tens of thousands of thousands of thousands who adore and praise him and extol him and in the church we could never praise him enough we could never exaggerate his great worth we could we could never make too much of Jesus we could we could never extol him too much and you know the wonderful thing is is that every time we begin to praise him we are we are, we are fulfilling what Isaiah prophesied here. He will be lifted up and he will be extolled. May he be lifted up this morning in all of our thoughts today. But why should he be so despised? If you think about it, why should he be so hated? I mean, su- such, a, such a, a vicious hatred was aroused against him. I mean, he came healing. He came forgiving, how, how, how quickly he was to forgive. A notorious felon turned to him in the 11th hour and Jesus said, today you shall be with me in paradise. The first words he uttered from the cross was, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. But why should he be so despised? That's an important question to ask. It had to be more than the fact that, that the Jewish people were looking for a great prince, but instead came in the garb of a peasant. That they were expecting a Solomon arrayed in splendor and glory and instead he came as a carpenter? But that can't be the sole reason why there was just such a, a revulsion at his person. I was watching a, a program last night on, on, on TV, one of those mystery programs. And, and this is the story about this couple that went on their honeymoon and, and, and she dies on, on their honeymoon and, and the husband is then arrested for murder. And how many stories are like that? I mean, it, it, there's so many programs, you know, uh, forensic files and, and homicide. And I'm talking about real, real stories about crimes that are committed. Husbands killing their wives, wives taking contracts out on their husbands and children killing their parents for their money. And I mean, th- it seems like they never run out. And we live in such a violent world. So, so it should not surprise us that there should be this violence Perpetrated, but, but but it doesn't seem to be, it, it doesn't seem to be consistent with what he came to do. The hatred will always be. The cause will always be. The stumbling block will always be the cross. For the cross will always be the offense and the scandal. And you know it's hard for us in twenty first century to to really wrap our minds around how much of a scandal. It is to say Messiah crucified. It's an oxymoron. It's a paradox. And in that first century, only, only the, the, the scum of the earth, only the worst of the worst were ever crucified. And to think that, that the king of kings, the, the Messiah, the, 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 the one who is the, the champion of God's people should be nailed to a cross. It was a scandal. The world clamors for a champion. The world wants a celebrity. The world wants a hero that is, that, that is courageous, not one who is submissive and who is weak, but one who is dominant and strong, who can display his power. But his appearance was that, that we should not desire him. There was nothing about him, Isaiah says, that, that, that made us reach out to him physically. If I, if I could say it this way, maybe we'd understand. He wasn't presidential looking, you know, in, in this age of politics right now. You know, you know what I mean by he, he, he has, he looks like a president. He wasn't kingly looking. He wasn't president. He didn't have the look. In the movie, The Passion of the Christ, Jim Gewiesel, who played Jesus, was far too good looking to, to be the Jesus of Isaiah. In fact, his, his pretty blue eyes had to be covered with, with uh, contact lenses, brown contact lenses. He was much too pretty to be Jesus. Isaiah is talking about what is the crime, not of the century, but the crime of the ages. He's talking about the most vicious, the most cruel method of execution that the world has ever thought of. And that is a stumbling block, because it slays our pride. It, it tells man that he is absolutely bankrupt and absolutely corrupt and that he is morally depraved. And that the only way, the only possible way that he can know salvation is if God himself has to undertake the plan of salvation for us. God doing for the sinner what the sinner not and never could do for himself. It has to be all of grace or it is not at all. The cross is an offense to the intellect, to the the high and the mighty, to the wisdom of this world. And so Paul writes something like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Christ sent me to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Wait a minute, Paul. Do you mean to say that that the power of the cross can be depleted, it can be emptied because of flowery words? And the answer is yes. Yes. Words that were meant to communicate the simplicity of the gospel can can, cause its power to be depleted. So he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. The two, the two races in the world, the, the Jews thought it was a scandal. A, a st- we can't get our minds wrapped around this. And the Greeks, the, the, the Gentiles thought it was absolutely utter foolishness. This is stupidity. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because by wisdom, the world did not know God. So God chose the foolish things of this world to confound the wisdom of the wise. For this one single purpose, that it might all appear to be of grace and not of works. I love the story. I came across this the other day of Charles Spurgeon, one of the great preachers of the 19th century. When he was a teenager, he was invited by his grandpa to to preach in his grandfather's church and uh, his train was delayed and so and so his grandfather got up and 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 began to open the the text for for him from Ephesians chapter two verses eight and nine and as he's beginning to to, to, to speak there for a few minutes. Then Charles comes walking into the church and the grandfather says, here's my grandson now. He can preach the gospel better than me. But Charles, you can't preach a better gospel, can you, son? And Charles was humbled by his grandfather's remarks and tried to defer to his grandfather, but the elder said, no, come on up here. And as he began to take off from that portion of scripture, from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, His grandfather sitting behind him kept saying to him, tell him again, Charles, tell him again. And he would continue preaching and he would say, tell him again, Charles, tell him again. And if there's any words that that need to be repeated, it's these, for by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. The gift of God. You can't earn it. You can't do anything. You can't contribute one single thing to the salvation of your soul. You've got to come, like that old song says, just as I am, without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me. According to the Global Language Monitor, as of January 1st, 2012, there is now 1,010,649 words to the English language. Of those, there are thousands of technical terms and phrases and words that are very seldom used if ever spoken in language. The one million word threshold took place on January 10th, 2009. A new word is created every 98 minutes. That's about 15 new words every single day, right? But one of the most important words, one of the most simplest words, was a a Philippian jailer cried out to Paul and Silas and said, what must I do to be saved? The most important question you will ever ask. What must I do to be saved? Paul didn't give him some long technical explanation. It was simple. It was believe and live. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ means that I trust that he is the substitution for my sins. It's as simple as that. It's not complicated. It's believe and live. And if you will believe, then you will live. Not with human words of men's wisdom, lest the cross of Christ should be emptied of its power. Some people don't believe because it offends their sense of intelligence, their sense of eliteness. They, they want to contribute something. And there are many others that just simply don't believe in God. But the Bible says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God you look at this universe and tell me this is all just an accident, can't happen. Isaiah said he was disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred more than human likeness, beyond human likeness. In Eugene Peterson's translation of the Bible called The Message, he said he didn't even look human. He was disfigured past recognition that's because something was happening to him that was way above, over and above the violence of human hands. As God was laying upon him the sin of the world, as he was becoming sin for us who knew no sin, that we in turn, in exchange, might become the righteousness of God in Christ. The disfigurement, the wounds, and maybe the passion of the Christ, if you've seen it, it probably comes closest to what actually happened to Jesus physically as he gave his, his back to the smiter, gave his beard to those that plucked out the hair. They, they dug the pharaohs prophetically, it says, into his back. He, he, probably, he probably was more of a mess at the hand of his own father because the wrath of man is, is one thing, but the wrath of God is totally inexplicable. And God was pouring out upon him the wrath that you and I deserve. And Isaiah said, he will sprinkle many nations. And the the allusion there is to what Moses and what the high priest would do. What Moses did to ratify the covenant, he sprinkled the blood of an animal upon the book and upon the people. And the high priest, as you well know, went in once a year into the Holy of Holies, and there he sprinkled what is called the mercy seat, that which covered the broken law. And Jesus will sprinkle many nations. I like the way the hymn writer said, there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. It's the blood of Jesus. Not just that he simply died, but it was the manner in which he died that he died pouring out his blood for us as the, what the Bible calls the propitiation for our sins, the covering of our sins. You know, it's impossible for us to have confidence in the love of God without proof. If I say to, 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 to anyone this morning that this famous person, and if I mention a person, we, we would all know that person's name. But if I said, that person loves, loves you Ron you know, Jennifer Lopez. All right, Ron, your wife is going to hit you for this later. But, but but if I said to you, Ron, Jennifer Lopez loves you, right? You, you would say, get out of here, right? Like, where's the evidence? Can I tell you that Jesus Christ loves you and that the evidence that he has provided for us by this, by this, we know the love of God because he laid down his life for us. By this, we know that the Father sent him because of 340 Old Testament prophecies that that accurately came to pass, just as God said. And what I want you to know this morning is simply this, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for you. Jesus Christ laid down his life for you. This is how we know the love of God. I want to share a story with you that I read from Max Lakato's And I I just want to kind of close with this, if that would be all right. It's called Timeless, Boundless Love. Untetted by time, God sees us all, vagabonds and ragamuffins all. He saw us before we were born, He loves us and loves what He sees. Flooded by emotion, overcome by pride, the star maker turns to us one by one and says, you're my child, I love you dearly. I'm aware that someday you'll turn from me and you'll walk away, but I want you to know I've already provided a way back. And to prove it, he did something extraordinary. Stepping from the throne, he removed his robe of light and wrapped himself in skin, Pigmented human skin, the light of the universe entered a dark, wet womb. He whom angels worshipped nestled himself in the placenta of a peasant, was birthed into the cold night, and then slept on cow's hay. Mary didn't know whether to give him milk or to give him praise, but she gave him both since he was both hungry and holy. Joseph didn't know whether to call him junior or father, but in the end he called him Jesus since that's what the angel said, since he didn't know the furthest idea of what to name God that you can cradle in your arms. Don't you think their heads tilted and their minds wandered? What in the world is God doing? Or better yet, God, what are you doing in the world? Can anything make you stop loving me? God asks. Watch me speak your language, sleep on your earth, feel your hurts. Behold, maker of sound and sight, sneezes and coughs and blows his nose. You wonder if I understand how you feel. Look at the eyes of the dancing one as the kid of Nazareth. As he walks to school, ponder the toddler at Mary's table. That's God spilling his milk. You wonder how long my love will last? Find your answer on a splinted cross on a craggy hill. That's me you see. Up there, you're a maker, you're a God, nailed, stabbed, bleeding, covered in spit and sin-soaked. That's your sin I'm feeling. That's your death I'm dying. That's your resurrection, I'm living. That's how much I love you. That is how we know the love of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you will search this humble meeting this morning. And I pray that the communication of this great love, this amazing grace, would break through the hardest heart, break through the coldest heart, and fill us with the knowledge of the love of God as the Holy Spirit is sent to cascade in our hearts the knowledge of the love of Christ. Would you do that this morning, Lord God, for every person that's here, for those that may have been walking with you for many, many years, let them be reminded that this is the price you paid to prove, to give the evidence of your love. And for those that may be here this morning that are just curious and wondering what's what's God up to? God has taken the canvas of human history and he has painted the image of his son, the image of one who loves unconditionally, who forgives when we turn to him with all of our heart. And he forgives us and says, today you too will be with me in paradise. If you're here this morning and that may apply to you, I want you to just open your heart. Those simple words, what must I do to be saved? Believe and live. And if you will believe this morning that Jesus Christ is your substitute, you will have life and you will have it more abundantly because that's what Jesus Christ came to do. So Father, I pray this morning that hearts will respond to you as you have already responded to us, as you have already come to us in the person of your Son, and have bled and died so that we might have eternal life, that our sins might be forgiven, that our names might be written in the Lamb's book of life. This is too awesome for us. This is too wonderful. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sin is plunged beneath that flood. Those all their guilty stains. Let the blood of Jesus cleanse you this morning. Let the blood of Jesus give you peace. It's the blood that gives us forgiveness. It's the blood of Jesus, it's not some gross thing. I know it's it's the it's the horrific crime of the ages, but it's according to the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God, and that is the only way that we can come to the predetermined triumph and victory of Jesus Christ. Let's all stand together as we worship him this morning. The one who gave himself for us can never be lifted up too high. He can never be extolled. He can never be praised. He can never be made too much of. So let's make much of him this morning. Amen.